find 10,000 people, or maybe it's 1,000, who really think I'm amazing and be totally fine that millions of people have no idea. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Huck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm John Kelly. It's Monday, Media Monday, January 2nd. Happy New Year. Today, I'm joined by a very special guest, my pal, Adam Davidson, the former co-founder of Planet Money, formerly of The New York Times and The New Yorker, the former CEO of 3 and Candy 4. Adam and I chat today about one of the most interesting evolutions in our media industry, the role of individual brands as they compete with institutional brands. And Adam takes me behind the curtain on what the podcasting industry looked like in the early 2000s and what it's going to look like in the next few years. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. This podcast is proudly supported by Netflix, presenting The Gentleman. The new series from Guy Ritchie stars Emmy nominee Theo James, Kaya Scodelario, and Daniel Ains. Eddie Horniman, played by Theo James, unexpectedly inherits his father's estate, only to discover it's part of a cannabis empire. And Britain's criminal underworld wants a piece of the operation, forcing Eddie to play the gangsters at their own game. Now available only on Netflix. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who rule it all. I'm John Kelly, in for Peter Hanby, who's still cavorting around the Greek islands with Elon Musk and Ari Emanuel. Send him a postcard if you can. Today, I'm joined by a very, very special guest, Adam Davidson. Adam, welcome to the program. Thank you, John. It is great to be on a show with somebody who I talk to almost every day. So, Well, we first met at a um, the New York Times Magazine when we were working on a column called It's the Economy. And you were one of the first people who sort of taught me the power of influential journalists and how uh, influential journalists were, were influencers them, themselves. And I think that's actually what we really wanted to talk about today. It's a new year and really the, the defining trend of the media industry as we've seen it in the last you know, you know, 12 to 24 months, has been this real dissonance between institutional brands and journalists being the, the brand themselves. And I actually, I, I really want your take on this because you've been on both sides of it. And um, maybe it's useful for the two or three people out there who, who don't know your uh, Wikipedia page, uh, like the back of their mind, if you kind of walk us through your very ex experiences in and out of um, these media institutions and, and what you've been cooking up the last couple of years. Sure. I mean, I, I, um, you know, I, I was thinking this morning talking to you about, um, I started my career as a journalist in 1992 when you were seven or whatever. <laughs> and at that time, the only dreams I had were to one day work at NPR and then either the New York Times or the New Yorker. Those would have been my three dreams. And then took a while, but I did work at all three places and left all three places and am now doing things that in 1992, just no journalist would even know what that was. I'm essentially my own business. I mean, I do write. I also do consulting. I work in Hollywood. I do a whole bunch of things and I find it 
it's it's more fun it's more it's way more lucrative and it's way more freeing and and so i was thinking this morning how transformed our industry is now i've been very lucky and and that's all worked out well for me. There are other people where this kind of deinstitutionalization, obviously, there were a lot more journalists employed in America in 1992 than there are today. There are a lot more pathways for like a fairly predictable career back then. I mean, it, you know, when I, when I think of the media landscape, even in the early 2000s, there, was a, there were very healthy local newspapers, local magazines, regional newspapers, regional magazines. Now, even people at the big national ones are are terrified every day that the whole the whole game is up and you know a phrase you and I've used a lot is it's like the floor has fallen away that the you know the worst possible career you could imagine is now much worse than it might have been back in the 90s but also the ceiling has disappeared that you know you and I know several people who are multi multi millionaires who mm-hmm. came up with us into a world where wild success would would still mean you have a salary that's you know many levels below you know a doctor a lawyer a dentist that kind of thing so i i'm i'm old for this change i mean i think you know i still am from a generation where a lot of my peers don't quite understand what exactly happened and and what the rules are i think younger people just intuit this they understand it but it all boils down to you know, if you had asked me in the 90s or the early 2000s, like, could I ever imagine getting to the New York Times or getting to the New Yorker and not just clinging to it for the rest of my life? I would have said, no, of course. Why would I ever leave? And so that to me is not just a story about me and, and my personal choices. It's actually a big story about media and c- companies in general. You know, I, I learned a lot about economics, obviously, from our time uh, working officially together. And one of the the theories that, that you espouse in the passion economy is this notion, and I'm, I'm ad-libbing a little bit here, that basically the 21st century is sort of represents the best of the, the 19th and, and the best of the 20th. And we've When we've discussed this in the past, we've used, you know, an example of like consumer packaged goods that in the olden days, in the in the 19th century, every village had a had a, a small shop that sold each thing and, and things were pretty customizable because the shopkeeper knew their customers directly. In the 20th century, we lived in an era of, you know, you have three kinds of underwear, three kinds of t-shirts, three kinds of orange juice, whatever it was, and, and everything was cheaper and, and easier to, to uh, ship across the world, but we sacrificed that sort of customization for efficiency. And now we're looking at a world where we have a bit of both. And that is something that's really happening in media now. I was thinking about this the other day, reading about Barry Weiss's new um, new media company, the Free Press, which seems to sort of have staked out a corner on this kind of libertarian, anti-woke bent, but also as part of the, the direct-to-consumer and subscription economy. And I just want to get your sense on what you think of this this new trend of journalist as influencer business. Do you, do you think it's an end state? Do you think it's a, a plot along the you know mile marker on the road to get somewhere else? Um, uh, you've, you've sort of lived this life, so I'm curious how you envision this new economy. Yeah, I think... Um this idea of a passion economy where you could actually monetize passion, it it first occurred to me when I started Planet Money at NPR with Alex Bloomberg. And when we started, I remember early on, I think we were the first in the, in the beginning, we were a daily news show, you know, 
professionally produced by full-time journalists. I, I think we were the first podcast like that. And we reached 50,000 listeners, which in 2008 or 2009, whenever we hit that, was unbelievable. Like no podcast. It was crazy to imagine we would get 50,000 listeners. Today, you know, if NPR launched a newsy podcast and it only had 50,000, that would be a huge failure. But at the time, that was crazy. And I remember some bosses at NPR saying, yeah, but you could be on Morning Edition. You could be on All Things Considered, our drive time radio shows. And those reach 30 million people. But at that time, I remember saying the impact of those 50,000 listeners is so much greater. Mm -hmm. I, I had been reporting for those big national shows for years at that point. And maybe I got three letters in my whole career. And now I was getting dozens of messages a day. Um, I noticed just like living in Brooklyn, sort of in, in podcast, public radio podcast central, um, <laughs> when I'd go to a party, like way more people seemed excited. They seemed to know who I was. Like there was just a, a level of energy and passion around and around being a podcaster as opposed to being a broadcaster. And it made sense. I, uh, you know, broadcast and both specifically like radio broadcast, but also broadly speaking, you know, thinking of, I don't know, Snickers bars or, you know, lower end cars or whatever, any product where the goal is to sell a huge number of them to a large, to have enormous market share. They're engineered to go quickly over any objections, but but not really to engage any unique passions, any special upset. You know, if you happen to be a car obsessive or you're a candy bar obsessive or something, you're probably not going to have as your favorite passionate one the the mass produced product. You know, certainly we see this in TV when we shifted from massive audiences on broadcast to narrower audiences. So the idea that in in a world where unit price is is seen as fairly fixed and fixed by the market, like a Snickers bar, a, a candy bar costs a buck, and an entry level, you know, family sedan costs sixteen thousand. Whatever it is, um, you you really do need to go for massive scale and inoffensiveness. But when you can mm -hmm. start pricing intensity of engagement, oh, it's a totally different, the incentives are different for the creator in good and bad ways. I mean, it, it, so, you know, you look at people with Substacks or Barry Weiss, you know, if she has, let's say she gets 10,000 people paying a hundred bucks a year as a subscription, that starts to be a real business for somebody. Mm. And, um, and if she gets to a hundred thousand, that starts to be an unbelievably successful business. Like you start getting investors and stuff. Whereas in the traditional magazine world, a hundred thousand is like a, a really low performing, very unsuccessful magazine. So when we shift from mass to intimate and, and this is the crucial bit, which the streamers and others are wrestling with, and you're able to capture some bit of that passion price, some bit of the intensity mm -hmm. price, it, it, it utterly transforms how the market works. It means a lot more skews, a lot more different products, because you're not just going to have a market completely dominated by one player. Mm -hmm. It can lead to really good things, lots of people getting 
things they really value in their lives being dramatically better. It also can lead to bad things where, you know, the hyperpolarization, the, you know, the recognition that it seems to be some in certain markets easier to monetize hate and fury than to monetize like quiet, thoughtful reflection. So, so I'm not, I don't want to say it's all good or it's all bad, but it's definitely a thing. And the way I think about it is media is one of the first movers in this space simply because all we do is like call people and write down stuff and it's relatively <laughs> easy. We don't have to build factories and, and distribution networks and stuff, but the themes in media are themes throughout business this, this, in this shift from mass to intimate. I appreciate you saying that. It, it reminds me one of the um, one of the working titles for uh, for your book was the Cliff Jumpers, which I think was um, came out of a conversation that we used to have about basically just like the recognition that you know you can't build anything new in in your life or in, in your work or in your business without without at least jumping off off one cliff. A very artful um, analogy that we came up with there. But as somebody, I mean, you have you have left places like the Times and the New York before. Uh, which is actually, you know, as we keep this conversation pinned to media, like that's the cliff for a lot of people. Barry Weiss jumped off the cliff. You know, I guess you could argue that maybe she was uh, she was nudged a little bit by by some people in the building uh, who um, disagreed with her politics. But do you think that that's going to continue to happen? Um, you know, or or will the, the creature comforts and the and the prestige that has just sort of been so overwhelming uh, for the last you know, quarter century uh, continue to to prevent the innovation in this space? I mean, the way, here's what I, how I experience it and other, other people's mileage may differ. There is something really weird in media specifically, which is that basically the more prestigious the institution you're at, the, in many ways, the worse your salary is. Like I, <laughs> I feel like I, I had a career that, you know, generally went up in prestige, but my salary actually fell um, going from NPR to the New York Times and then going from the New York Times to the New Yorker, more or less. I mean, it, it, it's a little complicated. But and when you think about the kind of, quote unquote, total compensation that that a media person, that a, at least somebody who you know is, is at all a public face gets, part of what you get when you work at an elite place is that you're part of that elite place. When mm. when you write something, it is reckoned with. I mean, that was a big thing you and I had to deal with. We worked on a yep. weekly economics column and every week there would be some number of people, sometimes like really big shots in business or Nobel Prize winning economists or whatever, who would hate us and be furious at us. In including and, people inside the building from, from time to time. Including people too, inside the building, including sometimes you and me hating each other. Yeah. And um, <laughs> true. And that's very, it's a wonderful feeling. It's a terrifying feeling sometimes, but it's, it's a big feeling to like, oh, I get to write something and then that becomes a significant part of the national conversation. That's that's a big deal. For other people, it's just, you know, certainly working at the New Yorker, New York Times, Planet Money, This American Life, like you're working with many of the very best people in their field, and that's really addictive. But as a result, your actual salary is fairly low. Like you are right. making way less than, you know, say, not very successful lawyers, dentists, you know, that kind of thing. And one thing I started to notice as I got into my 40s and then 50 is that a surprising number of people in media are from money. They come from wealthy families. So 
to me, I personally started experiencing it as this, almost like there were these two different markets. There was like a money market and a mm-hmm. public voice market, and they were wildly out of sync. And I just, I started to care less about being a public voice, and I started ca- caring more about, not that I wanted to become crazy rich, but I just did not want to spend the rest of my life making what felt like not a ton of money. So, and I think that is a deep issue throughout media. So, so one thing is the deal that's being offered back in the nineties, early two thousands for most of the 20th century by the New Yorker, by the New York times is basically like, we are, we're the Delta force. We're the best you can do. And nobody would think of leaving. And that deal is broken for a lot of people, not for everybody. There's lots of people who would kill to work at those places and will never leave those places. But there's far more than there ever was. It was very unusual for decades to hear of someone getting to the New York Times, getting to the New Yorker, and then quitting while they had many years of of writing left in their career. So I think that's a pressure. Like I, I know that's something that the senior leadership is really worried about and thinking about. How do we retain mm-hmm. people? At the same time, though, we don't yet have the full replacement. Everything, you know, getting a Substack, doing a podcast, they don't have, mm-hmm. you know, the people who seem to really thrive in that market are people like Joe Rogan or, um, you know, kind of fringe figures who get these subs- kind of angry anti-vax Substacks or whatever. But this is a standard part of the disintermediation um model that that so many economists and business school professors think about. It's Clayton Christensen disruption, that the new thing is seen as low status, you know, the new way of doing right. things that's cheaper, more effective, better meets the needs of of an audience. And so I I think that status thing is a big, big thing for journalists in a way maybe it is less so in other industries. I'm not sure. And So that would be the thing that I would keep my eye on. If Barry Weiss, like, I don't think there's a huge number of people who are going to quit the New Yorker or the New York Times or like a hosting gig at CNN or something Mm. to go work for a sub stack, basically. There are some, me, her, you know, there are others, but it's not a huge number. But that, I think that long term, when a market like the financial market, the salary market, basically, and the prestige market are so out of whack. I think, I think that breaks in the long term. It's hard for me to see how that sustains. I'm reminded as you're talking of an old friend of ours at the Times who was spending a year figuring out what could be the most commercially successful book that he could write. And uh, you know I'm talking about. And he did a ton of field research. And I remember him explaining this process to another colleague of ours whose eyes just flew out of their head and and, and couldn't realize, couldn't recognize why anyone would ever want to do something purely to to make money. And um, uh, as it turns out, that person uh, did exactly as they were setting out to do you know, wrote a couple of, of enormous, enormous, enormous bestsellers and uh, made, you know, probably eight-figure wealth. So um, different strokes for different folks. But anyway, Adam, after the break, we're going to talk about your core area of expertise and break the fourth wall here, the podcasting business. Mm-hmm. 
This podcast is proudly supported by Netflix, presenting the new series, The Gentleman. Theo James, Kaya Scodelario, and Daniel Ings star in what the playlist calls an entertaining crime comedy filled with style, panache, and laughs. The Evening Standard raves, The Gentleman is peak Guy Ritchie, impossible not to love. Now available only on Netflix. Hey guys, it's Peter. When I'm not recording the pod, let's be honest, I'm probably snacking, I get hungry. But when I can steal some moments during the day, I do like to eat healthy. And eating better is easy with Factors, delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. And this is big, no cooking required. I recommend the smoothies. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. So what are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. These are two-minute meals. Fuel up fast with Factor's restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat wherever you are are pancakes i love pancakes more than waffles more than french toast a couple of my favorites so far the red chili chicken tamale bowl and the smoky bacon and cheddar egg bites i love egg bites discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day like breakfast midday bites and more no prep no mess meals factor meals are ready to heat and eat so there's no prepping cooking or cleanup needed so sign up and save. Head to factormeals.com slash powers that be 50 and use code powers that be 50 to get 50% off. That's code powers that be 50 at factormeals.com slash powers that be 50 to get 50% off. Adam, welcome back. It's funny. I remember when we first met, I was probably the only person who was in a Brooklyn uh, and NPR adjacent milieu who'd never heard of you, which is probably why we got along immediately because I didn't really care. Um, but y- you were you were already kind of a thing because you'd created Planet Money, which really sort of was the first podcast as we knew it. Uh, this is you know way way before serial times, and I remember we would go to like delis for lunch and, and people would recognize your voice. It was it was a very funny thing. So I um, really would love to get some of your memories on those before times. And you ran Three Uncanny Four, obviously. So you, you've seen the sort of corporate um, element in the M&A uh, that's come into podcasting. I, I wonder wh- what you thought the industry was going to look like when, when you and Alex were, were plotting out Planet Money. And, and if you're surprised that uh, it's become what it has with these colossuses like Spotify and iHeart and, and Odyssey, the uh, co-producer of this show. So first off, there were podcasts. Planet Money started in September 2008. And I think some people put the first podcast at 2003, something like that. But before us, I can't think of any any podcast that was like a full-time professional salary mm-hmm. crew of like experienced audio professionals making a, a podcast. I mean, the, you know, Fresh Air and This American Life were very popular at the time, Radio Lab, but those were radio shows that were then kind of perfect for podcasting. But most like podcast originals were This Week in Tech with Leo Laporte, like long, excellent sometimes, sometimes not, like meandering conversations with people who had not previously been audio people. So this may be a distinction without a difference to most people, but to <laughs> the world I come from, it was a big deal. Like nobody like me, nobody who was a full-time professional salaried 
radio journalist switched fully to focus on podcasting. And um and and my theory was as I mentioned this idea that oh there's something about passion, there's something about the fact that people choose what podcasts to listen to, you know, broadcast you turn on the radio and you passively listen to whatever's on. Broadcast is engineered then to not alienate audiences. You have you have one broadcast and you want it to do well in Alabama and San Francisco and among 18-year-olds and 80-year-olds. Turns out NPR does not do particularly well among 18-year-olds, but it definitely does well among 80-year-olds. <laughs> and and it just creates a kind of, you know, people make fun of NPR for being kind of bland and boring. It creates a certain commoditization or standardization, whereas podcasting could be spikier, it could be more intense, it could be weirder, because the listeners are actually taking action. They're choosing. It's not passive. And and I'd say, you know, great analogy would be like newspaper articles where you where we went from a world where you buy the paper to your choosing individual articles. And as you once told me, as my editor at the New York Times, if I really want an article that everyone's going to read, I should come up with a great eggplant recipe for summer because those are <laughs> everyone wants you to think they're reading the big think piece about Afghanistan, but they're really just reading the eggplant um, grilling or or they're playing Wordle or something. That's right. Yeah. If you could write a pickleball eggplant dyslexia story, you would uh, you'd, you'd break <laughs> the algorithm. It. Yeah, that allows you to get your kids into college. That's um, right. So. And when I look back at the time, the bet I was making, I think it's the bet that Alex Bloomberg went on to make at Gimlet, which Spotify bought for a lot of money, was that we had this market where you had very cheap to produce shows, just a few people in a room with a microphone, and you had very expensive shows. So Planet Money at the time, I have a memory that our budget was like two and a half million a year, which was a crazy number for a podcast at that time. And that our view was, oh, all those kind of personality driven, just a guy with a mic shows aren't going to endure, that the highly produced, you know, by professional journalist shows are going to thrive. And what's actually nuts is that did succeed for about 10 years, like until 2018, you just see one after the other after the other of those kinds of shows really thriving with Serial obviously being the huge world changing example. But what we've seen since 2018 is the opposite, really, is that the shows that truly thrive are shows where the production is extremely low fi. It's it's this podcast. It's, you know, mm -hmm. people with microphones talking. You know, it's not highly produced. It's not, you know, for Planet Money or This American Life or Serial, you're talking about often hours, even weeks, even months, even years of work for each episode. I mean, I once calculated that I think Serial probably spends a person year per episode when you add up how many people work there, how many episodes they do. Planet Money, we were, I think, a full-time team of five producing two 20-minute podcasts a week. So that's extremely expensive. And it actually worked for a long time because... I think audience growth was so crazy. Like in in 2008, 2009, 2010, I remember a 2010 survey, 17% of Americans had even heard the word podcast, <laughs> let alone listened to one. And then, you know, today, you know, some huge percentage, I don't have the numbers in front of me, listen every day. And so 
we, you can't think of a medium that grew that fast in recent memory. So you had this massive audience growth and you just didn't have supply growth. The people producing hit podcasts in 2017 were, to a surprising degree, the people producing hit podcasts in 2009, 2010. And then 2018 and 2019 really are turning points in 2019 in particular, where you have Spotify putting $400 million in, Sony putting mm -hmm. tens of millions in. The whole industry in 2018 was something like $400 million. If you looked at all the money made and spent, it's something like $400 million. And then in 2019, I think you have more than a billion dollars pouring into this industry. And it's kind of going everywhere, but it fully zeroes out the competitive advantage of individually like excellent shows. I mean, up from 2008 to th 2018, every year there'd be, I don't know, three, four, five, six shows that sort of everyone would hear about, everyone would know about, everyone would, it would be, you know, that appointment rate audio. Mm -hmm. Today, there's probably 20 shows a day that are like actually really good shows, well-produced, professional teams. So you just saw this utter saturation, an utter saturation of the marketing channels, because almost the only way you can promote a podcast is on other podcasts. Mm -hmm. And you saw this sort of comparable to the rest of the economy, this barbellification, where you have a tiny number of companies and podcasts capturing an increasingly huge share of the market. And so the economics of a highly produced podcast just went from like almost a guarantee of success to one of the riskiest bets you can make. So it a little bit breaks my heart or a lot of it breaks my heart because I love that kind of work and I love those kinds of shows and it's very hard. I don't, I can't think of any new ones that have really become financially successful since COVID. Serial remains successful. This American Life remains successful, but they all existed before COVID. I think any recent hit like Smartless or Conan O'Brien mm -hmm. are, you know, instead of production fees, it's talent fees. But from a producer standpoint or a, a company standpoint, those are easy to manage because production fees are fixed and you have to spend all the money before your first episode airs and and it, it's super risky. Whereas talent fees can usually be incentive based. So you can you just partner with some charming famous person. If they bring a big audience and your show hits, then you you share the upside with them. If they don't for whatever reason click, then you're not out a huge amount of money. So my bet was exactly right for 10 years and has been exactly wrong for four years, which is why the <laughs> company I ran, Three Uncanny Four Productions, collapsed and disappeared because I made a big bet, so did a bunch of other people that turned out just to be wrong, that high production values would win out and would be worth it in the long run. The uh, the industry you're describing sounds a bit more like uh, like a premium vodka or or beauty in, in some sense that these, these cheaper products become higher margin when there are more and more of them. But uh, let's end on this because I, I wait, wait, I that's genuinely... a perfect example, by the way, because look at you look at vodka, you look at bourbon, you look at all that stuff. And where is the money? The money is not on, oh, we're going to come up with some brand new way to totally some new skill technology. It's I it it's I'm going to buy from the exact same distributor who makes all of it and i'm just going to slap a celebrity on on the face of it and i'm going to sh risk share so i got to give them 100 grand up front but if this thing makes millions then they do well if it doesn't i'm not out that much exactly
the answer to uh, – you may have just answered the question I was going to ask you, which is where does this go like economically? Uh, the You like really articulated perfectly what this looks like to the consumer and, and the, to the creator. But I was talking to an executive in this industry who pointed out that Spotify has 5 million shows on its platform. That is a lot. Like does this – is this entering a, a sort of Coke versus Pepsi world, Hearst versus Condé Nast where basically – uh, there are going to be a jillion shows and they're just going to be controlled by one or two purveyors because you need that sort of mega, mega scale to make any money off of it. That, that's kind of where it's heading in, in elsewhere in our entertainment universe. Yeah, I think it's 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 the barbell. You there's going to be a relatively small number, you know, Joe Rogan, Conan O'Brien of huge shows that are going to have, you know, millions, tens of millions of listeners and command and are going to do great in an ad market. And then there's going to be a much larger number of shows that are going to do well with more discrete, narrow audiences and are going to monetize not through advertising or advertising will be seen if they use advertising at all as like a a little bit to defray costs. But the money is going to come through some other form of direct user fee. So it could be, you know, like a Substack model where people pay for a subscription. It could, or a freemium model where there's a free podcast. A lot of people on Patreon do really well with that. Or it could just be, you know, I'm a an accountant and I have this podcast. And the reason I have the podcast is so I can get more accounting clients and, and charge them more mm -hmm. because I'm more famous in the accounting world or whatever. So I, I think the... The advertising centricity of podcasting has been a major barrier to success for a lot of people, but but as there's some kind of user fee. So I, I think someone like me, just to use me as, you know, someone who's like, before we ever used the word influencer, we had one big path, go with the big news organization brand and get their audience and try and become a little famous or whatever. Now, probably for me, the incentive is find 10,000 people, or maybe it's 1,000, who really think I'm amazing and be totally fine that millions is it of people a thousand? have no idea. Yeah, you sure. do. You think I'm amazing. You're oh, the only one I've found that. so far. Um, but you don't give me any money. <laughs> no, that's that's true, too. You're, yeah. you're, you're definitely cajoling a lot of former luminary uh, investors, I think, with this uh, this this view of the world. But you're right. It's, it's uh, the advertising dependency is like... You know, a, a very, very difficult thing to to wean oneself off of, and it only makes sense when the Joe Rogan level person says, "You know what? I'm actually going to make this my own thing, and I'm not going to take the money and do the big platform." Um, and that is that is a big cliff to jump. Yeah, I think so. you're in a permanent talent like that. That's the riskiness of it. I mean, the really that world belongs to the deal lawyers who um, become increasingly important. How do I? lock Will Ferrell and Joe Rogan and stuff into long-term deals so that if they take off, I can capture as much of the upside in, in the three years I have them under contract because they're going to leave the second it's over. What I will say is for people who have something to say or want to have something to say or do some kind of writing, creating, it's the best time ever because we have so many options. And our appetite, for the most part, is not to become you know, to launch our own SPAC and get a hundred million dollars. It's 
you know, to make a few hundred grand a year. That'd be amazing. And I think it's easier to do that than ever for talent. And we have less need of big institutions than ever for that. Well, I hope you're right. Uh, I'm, uh, we're counting on it. But Adam, thanks for being here. Happy New Year. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Happy New Year. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. and save at Ashley's anniversary sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details.